I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apianga Line. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Brian Peterson, Carol Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke, all members of the Apianga Readers Theatre. They're here with a new show entitled A Darkling Plain, a collection of classic 19th century Victorian literature, nearly two dozen stirring poems and curious prose selections, all intend us to help us celebrate, if not make sense of, the reign of Queen Victoria on this long weekend, long dedicated to her. You may remember last year at this time, the Apiango Readers Theatre brought us a show that was all about Queen Victoria herself and her husband, Prince Albert, both out and about doing whatever queens have to do to run what was then the British Empire. Well, this year, we thought we'd take a closer look at some of the turbulent issues and ideas that ran through what became known as the Victorian era. It ran from 1837, when Queen Victoria first became queen, to when she passed away early in 1901. It was a time when the Industrial Revolution had a full head of steam, and when new ideas were knocking over England's old, accepted, authoritative beliefs. If it wasn't slavery getting the boot, it was Charles Darwin reinventing how the world understood its own evolution. There was a revolution in transportation and communication brought on by the steam engine and electricity, the telegraph, and new public health measures, including widespread vaccination. Meanwhile, authors from the Bronte sisters to Charles Dickens, Alfred Lord Tennyson to Christina Rossetti, those Victorian writers were trying to capture the essence of what was really going on in the hearts and minds of all those subjects of Queen Victoria. Indeed, she herself was a prolific writer of diaries, journals, and letters all through her life, after having written and illustrated her own children's book when she was only 10 years old. Reading and writing ran through her veins, as it did almost every other Victorian. No TV or radio, blinking laptops or iPhones to distract them from their sacred printed words. So today, we're here to make sense of that old Victorian world, not by offering up some dry, dim-witted scholarly lecture. Rather, the Apiongo Readers Theatre has a better idea, a sort of bird's-eye view of nearly two dozen literary artifacts that, in a few short words, go a long way to explaining all things Victorian. Think of the next hour, then, as a sort of Coles Notes edition of everything you'll ever need to know to pass a Victorian literature test that might come your way. You never know. Victorian literature, it is believed by some, is very similar to what Monty Python once said of the Spanish Inquisition. It shows up when you least expect it. Better still, think of the bragging rights at state after dinner when Jeopardy comes on the telly or at one of our local libraries' supremely fun-filled trivial pursuit nights complete with wonderful prizes. Might not be a bad idea to start training for that eventuality. What you're about to hear could make all the difference between who wins and who loses, who celebrates and who snoozes. Take it from our quiz master. It's amazing how little you actually have to know to really figure out what's going on in the 19th century. That is, if you pay close attention to some very great poets and excellent prose writers. Take that famous 1859 translation of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam by Edward Fitzgerald. It has enough in it, apparently, to get Winston S. Churchill into and out of a few sticky wickets. Why, you don't even have to memorize the whole thing as young Winston did to figure things out. 
Just two stanzas will practically tell you everything you will ever need to know about the Victorian age. A book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. Oh, wilderness were paradise enough, some for the glories of this world, and some sigh for the prophet's paradise to come. Ah, take the cash and let the credit go, nor heed the rumble of a distant drum. There you have it, the entire Victorian era in a nutshell. Well, okay, maybe it's a little more complicated, but still, remember those two stanzas. They are positively Churchillian in their utility in winning trivial pursuit nights. Take that last line about heeding the rumble of the distant drum. Only five years prior to that line being written by Edward Fitzgerald, one of Britain's greatest military catastrophes befell its empire. It was the military defeat by the Russians in the Crimea, a far-off place with names strangely familiar to those of us here in Renfrew County. Balaclava and Sebastopol are both part of our geography. But to every English schoolgirl and boy, those two places remind them, even in the 21st century, of that deadly Charge of the Light Brigade. By the end of 1854, only a few months after that shocking defeat, Alfred Lord Tennyson immortalized it in his famous poem of the same name. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the six hundred. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabring the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the six hundred. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of six hundred. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made, honor the light brigade, noble 600. Note that couplet, there's not to reason why, there's but to do or die. It's often quoted by leading social influencers of not only the 20th century, but of the 21st. I kid you not. But what really happened back in 1854? Was it as bad or as heroic as Tennyson would have us believe? For that, we now turn to William Howard Russell, an Irish reporter who worked for the Times of London and who practically invented the art of being a war correspondent. He spent 22 months covering the Crimean War where the charge of the Light Brigade happened. In fact, 
He was there the day it happened. If the exhibition of the most brilliant valor, of the excess of courage, and of a daring which would have reflected luster on the best days of chivalry can afford full consolation for the disaster of today. We can have no reason to regret the melancholy loss which we sustained in a contest with a savage and barbarian enemy. I shall proceed to describe, to the best of my power, what occurred under my own eyes, and to state the facts which I have heard from men whose veracity is unimpeachable. Reserving to myself the exercise of the right of private judgment in making public and in suppressing the details of what occurred on this memorable day. It is a maxim of war that cavalry never act without support, that infantry should be close at hand when cavalry carry guns, as the effect is only instantaneous, and that it is necessary to have on the flank of a line of cavalry some squadrons in column the attack on the flank being most dangerous. The only support our light cavalry had was the reserve of heavy cavalry at a great distance behind them, the infantry and guns being far in the rear. There were no squadrons in column at all, and there was a plain to charge over before the enemy's guns were reached a mile and a half in length. At half-past eleven, our light cavalry brigade rushed to the front. They numbered as follows. 607 men with sabres drawn from the 4th Light Dragoons, the 8th Irish Hussars, the 11th Prince Albert Hussars, and the 13th Light Dragoons and the 17th Lancers. The whole brigade scarcely made one effective regiment, according to the numbers of Continental armies, and yet it was more than we could spare. As they passed towards the front, the Russians opened on them from the guns in the redoubts on the right, with volleys of musketry and rifles. They swept proudly past, glittering in the morning sun in all the pride and splendor of war. We could hardly believe the evidence of our senses. Surely that handful of men were not going to charge an army in position. Alas, it was but too true. Their desperate valor knew no bounds, and far indeed was it removed from its so-called better part, discretion. They advanced in two lines, quickening their pace as they closed towards the enemy. A more fearful spectacle was never witnessed than by those who, without the power to aid, beheld their heroic countrymen rushing to the arms of death. At the distance of 1,200 yards, the whole line of the enemy belched forth from 30 iron mouths a flood of smoke and flame through which hissed the deadly balls. Their flight was marked by instant gaps in our ranks, by dead men and horses, by steeds flying wounded or riderless across the plain. The first line was broken. It was joined by the second. They never halted or checked their speed an instant. With diminished ranks, thinned by those thirty guns, which the Russians had laid with the most deadly accuracy, with a halo of flashing steel above their heads, and with a cheer which was many a noble fellow's death cry, they flew into the smoke of the batteries. But ere they were lost from view, the plain was strewed with their bodies and with the carcasses of horses. They were exposed to an oblique fire from the batteries on the hills on both sides, as well as to a direct fire of musketry. 
Through the clouds of smoke, we could see their sabers flashing as they rode up to the guns and dashed between them, cutting down the gunners as they stood. The blaze of their steel, as an officer standing near me said, was like the turn of a shoal of mackerel. We saw them riding through the guns, as I have said, and to our delight we saw them returning, after breaking through a column of Russian infantry and scattering them like chaff. When the flank fire of the battery on the hill swept them down, scattered and broken as they were. Wounded men and dismounted troopers flying towards us told the sad tale. Demigods could not have done what they had failed to do. At the very moment when they were about to retreat, an enormous mass of lancers was hurled upon their flank. Colonel Shule of the 8th Hussars saw the danger and rode his few men straight at them, cutting his way through with fearful loss. The other regiments turned and engaged in a desperate encounter. With courage too great almost for credence, they were breaking their way through the columns which enveloped them, when there took place an act of atrocity without parallel in the modern warfare of civilized nations. The Russian gunners, when the storm of cavalry passed, returned to their guns. They saw their own cavalry mingled with the troopers who had just ridden over them, and to the eternal disgrace of the Russian name, the miscreants poured a murderous volley of grape and canister on the mass of struggling men and horses, mingling friend and foe in one common ruin. It was as much as our heavy cavalry brigade could do to cover the retreat of the miserable remnants of that band of heroes, as they returned to the place they had so lately quitted in all the pride of life. At twenty-five to twelve, not a British soldier, except the dead and dying, was left in front of these bloody Muscovite guns. Our loss, as far as it could be ascertained in killed, wounded and missing at two o'clock today, was as follows. Of the 607 men of the Light Brigade who went into action, 198 returned. 409 men were lost. Compared to the military carnage of the 20th century, it seems preposterous that the death of 409 men in the middle of the 19th century should have such an astounding impact on Britons when nearly 50 million people died in the Second World War alone. But that's why the Victorian era is so fascinating. Nobody in the British Empire expected that such a defeat, and nobody seemed to know how to explain it, except perhaps W. H. Russell and Alfred Lord Tennyson. It was Tennyson who was Queen Victoria's favorite poet and who had a firm grip on the popular taste of not only England, but much of the English-speaking world during her reign. She named him Poet Laureate in 1850, but 20 years prior to writing The Charge of the Light Brigade, Tennyson had come onto the literary stage in England about the same time as Victoria herself took up the crown. Only Tennyson introduced a new literary mood, that of the unrelenting grief for those who died much too young. His friend, Arthur Hallam, had died unexpectedly at age 22 after he and Tennyson had become fast friends while Cambridge undergraduates. Here are three short Tennyson poems written long before his charge at the Light Brigade, and yet each of them have become very much part of a unique Victorian anthem associated with much of the 19th century. Break, break, break on thy cold grey stones, O sea. 
and I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. Oh, well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. Oh, well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay. And the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill. But oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, break, break at the foot of thy crags, O sea. But the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. I sometimes hold it half a sin to put in words the grief I feel, for words like nature half reveal and half conceal the soul within. But for the unquiet heart and brain, a use in measured language lies, the sad mechanical exercise, like dull narcotics numbing pain. In words like weeds I'll wrap o'er me, like courses close against the cold, but that large grief which these enfold is given in outline and no more. Tears, idle tears, I know not what they mean. Tears from the depth of some divine despair rise in the heart and gather to the eyes in looking on the happy autumn fields and thinking of the days that are no more. Fresh as the first beam glittering on a sail that brings our friends up from the underworld, sad as the last which reddens over one that sinks with all we love below the verge. So sad, so fresh the days that are no more. Ah, sad and strange as in dark summer dawns the earliest pipe of half-awakened birds to dying ears, when unto dying eyes the casement slowly grows a glimmering square. So sad, so strange, the days that are no more. Dear as remembered kisses after death, and sweet as those by hopeless fancy feigned on lips that are for others, deep as love, deep as first love, and wild with all regret. O death in life, the days that are no more. Indeed, Tennyson's literary sense of grief became a wellspring for much more than the simple loss of a young friend. It opened up a whole new literary vein centered on the implicit pain of memory, if not how such memories often bring on an acute questioning of the whole purpose and meaning of life. So when the actual charge of the Light Brigade happened in 1854 during the Crimean War, the British Empire was more than primed to examine its imperial conscience, that is, along Tennysonian literary principles. Put another way, Alfred Lord Tennyson made the English-speaking world ask, why did those 409 young English men all have to die on that particular day and in that far-off place? Of course, Tennyson was not the only poet asking that question or pointing to sometimes complex emotional and socio-political answers. The Bronte sisters, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, were also popular writers of the Victorian age, and all three had been hard at it, trying to explain their turbulent industrial age. Certainly, the most famous was Emily Bronte, offered that great bodice ripper, Wuthering Heights. 
But even before she wrote that novel in 1847, Emmeline was very much attuned to the literary themes of Tennyson. Listen, for instance, to her poem, Remembrance, from 1845. Cold in the earth, and the deep snow piled above thee, far, far removed, cold in the dreary grave. Have I forgot my only love to love thee, severed at last by time's all-severing wave? Now, when alone, do my thoughts no longer hover over the mountains on that northern shore, resting their wings where heath and fern leaves cover thy noble heart forever, evermore? Cold in the earth, and fifteen wild Decembers, from those brown hills have melted into spring. Faithful indeed is the spirit that remembers. After such years of change and suffering, sweet love of youth, forgive if I forget thee. While the world's tide is bearing me along, other desires and other hopes beset me, hopes which obscure but cannot do thee wrong. No later light has lightened up my heaven, no second morn has ever shone for me. All my life's bliss from thy dear life was given. All my life's bliss is in the grave with thee. But when the days of golden dreams had perished, and even despair was powerless to destroy, then did I learn how existence could be cherished, strengthened, and fed without the aid of joy. Then did I check the tears of useless passion, weaned my young soul from yearning after thine, sternly denied its burning, desiring wish to hasten down to that tomb already more than mine. And even yet, I dare not let it languish, dare not indulge in memory's rapturous pain. Once drinking deep of that divinest anguish, how could I seek the empty world again? Of course, no literature, Victorian or otherwise, can survive on the thin gruel of sadness. Victorian writers as a group were also very much working beyond the shadow of the grave. The Victorians were also very much enamored of romantic love, and perhaps there was nobody better in that category than Elizabeth Barrett, whose own elopement from London with her beloved Robert Browning, another well-known poet, and her ultimate escape to Rome was big news in England in 1846. She wrote one of the most enduring books of all Victorian literature, Sonnets of the Portuguese, that is still in print today and read by tens of thousands of young lovers in the 21st century. Here's probably its most famous sonnet. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. 
and if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Still, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was very much a young woman of her age, unable to end even her most intimate poem without somehow making a passing reference to that old stalwart Victorian theme of death. The real heart and soul of Victorian literary taste, however, belongs to another Victorian poet, Matthew Arnold. He does more than simply talk of romantic love or the shades of death. In his famous and much-loved poem, Dover Beach, which, incidentally, he wrote while honeymooning along the English Channel, he speaks of much larger themes, ideas about the true meaning of what was happening to Victorian life in general, and English life in particular. The sea is calm tonight, the tide is full, the moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and fast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound a thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges, drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. It was very much a poem about lost faith, lost certitude, a decaying system of old beliefs, the crumbling of everything that everyone in pre-Victorian England held dear. Indeed, Arnold saw Victorian England as a darkling plain, not just a place of metaphoric strife, but a place much afflicted by the real open warfare in the nether regions of Victoria's British Empire. He saw that darkling plain as all-consuming, devouring the very life of average Britons living under its imperial dictums everywhere which, of course, probably scared the bejeepers out of Britons everywhere and, just as in other ages, the Victorian era, after the horror of the Charge of the Light Brigade, the rumble of those distant drums, Britain soon began to find its fair share of writers who looked pleasantly backwards to a golden pre-Victorian age where life surely must have been simpler or seemed less complicated. Thomas Hughes remains hugely popular even today after becoming the best of those golden throwbacks after publishing his famous Tom Brown school days during those turbulent Victorian times. 
Here's a short excerpt that would make most everyone want to sign up for a British public school, if not take out rooms in merry old England during a summer break from watching too much Downton Abbey. I sometimes think that you boys of this generation are a deal tenderer fellows than we used to be. At any rate, you're much more comfortable travelers, for I see every one of you with his rug or plaid and other dodges for preserving the caloric, and most of you going in those fuzzy, dusted, padded, first-class carriages. It was another affair altogether, a dark ride on the top of the tally-ho, I can tell you, in a tight Petersham coat and your feet dangling six inches from the floor. Then you knew what coal was, and what it was to be without legs, for not a bit of feeling had you in them after the first half hour. But it had its pleasures, the old dark ride. First there was the consciousness of silent endurance, so dear to every Englishman, of standing out against something and not giving in. Then there was the music of the rattling harness and the ring of the horse's feet on the hard road, and the glare of the two bright lamps through the steaming hoarfrost, over the leader's ears into the darkness, and the cheery toot of the guard's horn to warn some drowsy pikeman or the hostler at the next change, and the looking forward to daylight, and last but not least, the delight of returning sensation to your toes. Then the break of dawn and the sunrise. Where can they be ever seen in perfection but from a coach roof? You want motion and change in music to see them in their glory. Not the music of singing men and singing women, but good silent music which sets itself in your own head, the accompaniment of work and getting over the ground. The tally-ho is past St. Albans, and Tom is enjoying the ride, though half-frozen. The guard who is alone with him on the back of the coach is silent, but has muffled Tom's feet up in straw and put the end of an oat sack over his knees. The darkness has driven him inwards, and he has gone over his little past life and thought of all his doings and promises, and of his mother and sister and his father's last words, and has made fifty good resolutions and means to bear himself like a brave brown as he is, though a young one. Then he has been forward into the mysterious boy future, speculating as to what sort of place rugby is, and what they do there, and calling up all the stories of public schools which he has heard from big boys in the holidays. He is choke full of hope and life, notwithstanding the cold, and kicks his heels against the backboard, and would like to sing, only he doesn't know how his friend, the silent guard, might take it. And now the dawn breaks at the end of the fourth stage, and the coach pulls up at a little roadside inn with huge stables behind. There is a bright fire gleaming through the red curtains of the bar window, and the door is open. The coachman catches his whip into a double thong and throws it to the hostler. The steam of the horses rises straight up into the air. He has put them along over the last two miles and is two minutes before his time. He rolls down from the box and into the inn. The guard rolls off behind. Now, sir, he says to Tom, you just jump down and I'll give you a drop of something to keep the cold out. Tom finds a difficulty in jumping, or indeed in finding the top of the wheel with his feet, which may be in the next world for all he feels. So the guard picks him off the coach top and sets him on his legs, and they stump off into the bar and join the coachman and the other outside passengers. Here, a fresh-looking barmaid serves them each with a glass of early pearl as they stand before the fire, coachman and guard exchanging business remarks. The pearl warms the cockles of Tom's heart and makes him cough. 
Rare tackle that, sir, of a cold morning, says the coachman, smiling. Time's up. They are out again and up, Coachy the last, gathering the reins into his hands and talking to Jem the hostler about the mare's shoulder and then swinging himself up onto the box, the horses dashing off in a canter before he falls into his seat. Toot, toot, tootle, too, goes the horn, and away they are again, five and thirty miles on their road. Nearly halfway to rugby, thinks Tom, and the prospect of breakfast at the end of the stage. And now they begin to see, and the early life of the countryside comes out. A market cart or two, men in smock frocks going to their work, pipe in mouth, a whiff of which is no bad smell this bright morning. The sun gets up and the mist shines like silver gauze. They pass the hounds jogging along to a distant meet at the heels of the huntsman's back, whose face is about the color of the tails of his old pink, as he exchanges greetings with coachman and guard. Now they pull up at a lodge and take on board a well-muffled-up sportsman with his gun case and carpet bag. An early up-coach meets them, and the coachmen gather up their horses and pass one another with the accustomed lift of the elbow, each team doing 11 miles an hour with a mile to spare behind if necessary. And here comes breakfast. Twenty minutes here, gentlemen, says the coachman, as they pull up at half-past seven at the inn door. Of course, there were other, even more popular Victorian novelists, writers such as Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope, the latter who had quite a bit of fun dealing with the rising fears of various British social classes, just trying to keep calm and carry on. Here's an excerpt from Trollope's most popular novel, Barchester Towers. It involves good Anglican Bishop Proudy and his somewhat domineering wife, who tries to make certain that her husband toes the line, or else he's apt to end his days in worse shape than the boys from the Light Brigade. The bishop was sitting listlessly in his study when the news reached him of the dean's illness. It was brought to him by Mr. Slope, who, of course, was not the last person in Barchester to hear it. It was also not slow in finding its way to Mrs. Proudy's ears. It may be presumed that there was not just then much friendly intercourse between those two rival claimants for his lordship's obedience. Indeed, though living in the same house, they had not met since the stormy interview between them in the bishop's study on the preceding day. On that occasion, Mrs. Proudy had been defeated. That the prestige of continual victory should have been torn from her standards was a subject of great sorrow to that militant lady. But though defeated, she was not overcome. She felt that she might yet recover her lost ground, that she might yet hurl Mr. Slope down to the dust from which she had picked him, and force her sinning lord to sue for pardon in sackcloth and ashes. On that memorable day, memorable for his mutiny and rebellion against her high behests, he had carried his way with a high hand, and had really begun to think it possible that the days of his slavery were counted. He had begun to hope that he was now about to enter a free land, a land delicious with milk which he himself might quaff, and honey which would not tantalize him by being only honey to the eye. When Mrs. Proudy banged the door as she left his room, he felt himself every inch a bishop. To be sure, his spirit had been a little cowed by his chaplain's subsequent lecture, but on the whole he was highly pleased with himself and flattered himself that the worst was over. Ce n'est que le premier pas qui coûte, he reflected, and now that the first step had been so magnanimously taken, all the rest would follow easily. He met his wife as a matter of course at dinner, where little or nothing was said that could ruffle the bishop's happiness. 
His daughters and the servants were present and protected him. He made one or two trifling remarks on the subject of his projected visit to the archbishop in order to show to all concerned that he intended to have his own way. And the very servants perceiving the change transferred a little of their reverence from their mistress to their master, all which the master perceived, and so also did the mistress. But Mrs. Proudy bided her time. After dinner, he returned to his study, where Mr. Slope soon found him, and there they had tea together and planned many things. For some few minutes, the bishop was really happy. But, as the clock on the chimney-piece warned him that the stilly hours of night were drawing on, as he looked at his chamber candlestick and knew that he must use it, his heart sank within him again. He was as a ghost, all whose power of wandering free through these upper regions ceases at cockcrow. Or rather, he was the opposite of the ghost, for till cockcrow he must again be a serf. And would that be all? Could he trust himself to come down to breakfast a free man in the morning? He was nearly an hour later than usual when he betook himself to his rest. Rest? What rest? However, he took a couple of glasses of sherry and mounted the stairs. Far be it from us to follow him thither. There are some things which no novelist, no historian should attempt, some few scenes in life's drama which even no poet should dare to paint. Let that which passed between Dr. Proudy and his wife on this night be understood to be among them. He came down the following morning a sad and thoughtful man. He was attenuated in appearance, one might almost say emaciated. I doubt whether his now grizzled locks had not palpably become more grey than on the preceding evening. At any rate, he had aged materially. Years do not make a man old gradually and at an even pace. Look through the world and see if this is not so always, except in those rare cases in which the human being lives and dies without joys and without sorrows, like a vegetable. A man shall be possessed of florid, youthful, blooming health till it matters not what age. Thirty, forty, fifty, then comes some nipping frost, some period of agony, that robs the fibre of the body of their succulence, and the hale and hearty man is counted among the old. He came down and breakfasted alone. Mrs. Proudy, being indisposed, took her coffee in her bedroom, and her daughters waited upon her there. He ate his breakfast alone, and then, hardly knowing what he did, he betook himself to his usual seat in his study. He tried to solace himself with his coming visit to the archbishop. That effort of his own free will, at any rate, remained to him as an enduring triumph. But somehow, now that he had achieved it, he did not seem to care so much about it. It was his ambition that had prompted him to take his place at the archiepiscopal table, and his ambition was now quite dead within him. One of our favorite Victorian novelists of this period was a fellow by the name of George Eliot. At least that was her pen name. George was actually a woman, Mary Ann Evans, who wrote as a man if only to get her serious work published. If she seems quite modern, it's largely due to her insight into rarefied human psychology and delicate social conflicts that were far ahead of her time. Here's an excerpt from her most popular novel, The Mill on the Floss. It was a heavy disappointment to Maggie Tulliver that she was not allowed to go with her father in the gig when he went to fetch Tom home from the academy. 
But the morning was too wet, Mrs. Tulliver said, for a little girl to go out in her best bonnet. Maggie took the opposite view very strongly, and it was a direct consequence of this difference of opinion that when her mother was in the act of brushing out the reluctant black crop, Maggie suddenly rushed from under her hands and dipped her head in a basin of water standing near, in the vindictive determination that there should be no more chance of curls that day. Maggie! Maggie! exclaimed Mrs. Tulliver, sitting stout and helpless with the brushes on her lap. What is to become of you if you're so naughty? I'll tell your Aunt Glegg and your Aunt Pullet when they come next week, and they'll never love you any more. Oh dear, oh dear, look at your clean pinafore, wet from top to bottom. Folks will think it's a judgment on me as I've got such a child. They'll think I've done something wicked. Before this remonstrance was finished, Maggie was already out of hearing, making her way toward the great attic that ran under the old high-pitched roof, shaking the water from her black locks as she ran like a sky terrier escaped from his bath. This attic was Maggie's favorite retreat on a wet day when the weather was not too cold. Here she fretted out all her ill humors and talked aloud to the worm-eaten floors and the worm-eaten shelves and the dark rafters festooned with cobwebs. And here she kept a fetish, which she punished for all her misfortunes. This was the trunk of a large wooden doll, which once stared with the roundest of eyes above the reddest of cheeks, but was now entirely defaced by a long career of vicarious suffering. Three nails driven into the head commemorated as many crises in Maggie's nine years of earthly struggle, that luxury of vengeance having been suggested to her by the picture of J.L. destroying Sisera in the old Bible. The last nail had been driven in with a fiercer stroke than usual, for the fetish on that occasion represented Aunt Glegg. But immediately afterward, Maggie had reflected that if she drove many nails in, she would not be so well able to fancy that the head was hurt when she knocked it against the wall, nor to comfort it and make believe to poultice it when her fury was abated. For even Aunt Glegg would be pitiable when she had been hurt very much, and thoroughly humiliated, so as to beg her niece's pardon. Since then, she had driven no more nails in, but had soothed herself by alternately grinding and beating the wooden head against the rough brick of the great chimneys that made two square pillars supporting the roof. That was what she did this morning on reaching the attic, sobbing all the while with a passion that expelled every other form of consciousness, even the memory of the grievance that had caused it. As at last the sobs were getting quieter and the grinding less fierce, a sudden beam of sunshine falling through the wire lattice across the worm-eaten shelves made her throw away the fetish and run to the window. The sun was really breaking out. The sound of the mill seemed cheerful again. The granary doors were open. And there was Yap, the queer white and brown terrier with one ear turned back, trotting about and sniffing vaguely as if he were in search of a companion. It was irresistible. 
Maggie tossed her hair back and ran downstairs, seized her bonnet without putting it on, peeped and then dashed along the passage lest she should encounter her mother and was quickly out in the yard, whirling round like a pythoness and singing as she whirled, Yap! Yap! Tom's coming home! While Yap danced and barked round her as much as to say, if there was any noise wanted, he was the dog for it. If George Eliot or Marianne Evans seems like the first real grown-up author, you're not alone. Many critics today consider her the first real champion of feminist writing who broke the publisher's stereotypical mold of thinking women could only write or read light romance novels and would have no aptitude for novels of conscience or ideas. So, too, is the modern opinion of many readers of Christina Rossetti. She's another Victorian poet of immense talent who handles the English language in an inspiring manner. Take this simple little poem called Uphill. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day? From morn to night, my friend. But is there for the night a resting place? A roof for when the slow dark hours begin. May not the darkness hide it from my face? You cannot miss that inn. Shall I meet other wayfarers at night? Those who have gone before. Then must I knock or call when just in sight? They will not keep you standing at that door. Shall I find comfort? Travel sore and weak? Of labor you shall find the sum. Will there be beds for me and all who seek? Yea, beds for all who come. There's something quite ominous about that reassuring secondary voice that almost sends shivers down some readers' backs, even today. Such is the power of a genuine Victorian poet who knows of what she speaks. Rossetti, Arnold, Trollope, Dickens, and the rest of the canon and Victorian greats, they all knew life was hard and the valley of death awaited them all, as it did the Light Brigade. But like the British military, those Victorian writers also had the benefit of the new 19th century systems of transportation and communication. As with W.H. Russell, who could use the telegraph to report the daily comings and goings of the Crimean War, there were other journalists, such as Henry Mayhew, who could do new and interesting journalistic work closer to home, including reporting on the simple getting and spending of lives along the streets of London. It was Mayhew who first began writing of what life was really like for ordinary Londoners, many living in abysmal poverty. Here are two such Mayhew eyewitness accounts. The first, about a ham sandwich seller in the London Theatre District, and the second, about a street sweeper. Both were written for the London Morning Chronicle before Henry Mayhew helped launch Punch magazine, Victorian England's most famous and enduring satirical magazine. I worked the theatres this side of the water, chiefly the Olympic and Adelphi. The best theatre ever had was the Garding, when they had two galleries, and was dramatic. The operas there wasn't good to me. The Lyceum was good, when it was Mr. Keeley's. I hardly know what my customers are. But there's the goes to the theatres. Shopkeepers and clerks, I think. Gentlemen don't often buy of me. They have bought, though. Oh, no, they never give a farthing over. They're more likely to want seven for six. The women of the town buy of me, when it gets late, for themselves and their fancy men. They're liberal enough with their money. They sometimes treat a poor fella in the public house. In summer, I'm often out till four in the morning, and then must lie in my bed half the next day. 
The Delphi was better than it is. I've taken in three shillings at the first turnout, the leaving of the theatre for the short time after the first piece. But the turnouts at the garden was better than that. A penny pie shop has spoiled for this at the Delphi and the Ashleys. I go out between eight and nine in the evening. People often want more in my sandwiches, though. I'm as though I'm starving them. Oh, they say, you've been apprenticed to the Vauxhall you have. There one shilling there, I says, and no bigger. I haven't Vauxhall prices. I stand by the night houses when it's late, not the fashionables. Their customers wouldn't look at me, but I've known women that carried their heads very high, glad to get a sandwich afterwards. Six times I've been upset by drunken fellows on purpose, I've no doubt, and lost all my stock. Once the gents kicked my basket into the dirt, and he was off before it was late. But some people, they began by making remarks about using a poor fellow that way. So he paid for them all, after he had them counted. I'm so sick of this life, sir. I do dread the winter, so I've stood up to my ankles in snow till after midnight, until I've wished I was snow myself, and could melt like it, and have an end. I'd do anything to get away from this, but I can't. This old dame is remarkable from the fact of being the chief support of a poor deaf cripple who is as much poorer than the crossing sweeper as she is poorer than Mrs. So-and-so in such-and-such street who allows the sweeper sixpence a week. The crossing sweeper is a rather stout old woman with a carneying tone and constant curtsy. She complains, in common with most of her class, of the present hard times and reverts longingly to the good old days when people were more liberal than they are now and had more to give. She says, I was on my crossing before the police was made, for I am not able to work and only get help by the people who knows me. Mr. So-and-so in the square gives me sixpence. She has gone in the country now, but she has left it at the oil shop for me. That's what I depends upon, darling, to help pay my rent, which is half a crown. My rent was three shillings, till the landlord didn't wish me to go, cause I was so punctual with my money. I give a corner of my room to a poor creature who's deaf as a beetle. She works at the soldier's coats and is a very good hand at it, and would earn a good deal of money if she had constant work. She owed as good as twelve shillings and sixpence for rent, poor thing, where she was last, and the landlord took all her goods except her bed. She's got that, so I give her a corner of my room for charity's sake. We must look to one another. She's as poor as a church mouse. I thought she would be good company for me. Still, a deaf person is but poor company to one. She had that heavy sickness they call the cholera about five years ago, and it fell in her side and in the side of her head, too. That made her deaf. Oh, she's a poor object. She has been with me since the month of February. I've lent her money out of my own pocket. I give her a cup of tea or a slice of bread when I see she hasn't got any. Then the people upstairs are kind to her and give her a bite and a sup. My husband was a soldier. He fought at the Battle of Waterloo. His pension was nine pence a day. All my family are dead, except my grandson, what's in New Orleans. I expect him back this very month that now we have. He gave me four pounds before he went to carry me over the last winter. If the Almighty God pleases to send him back, he'll be a great help to me. He's all I've got left. I never had but two children in all my life. I worked in noblemen's houses before I was married to my husband, who is dead. But he came to be poor, and I had to leave my houses where I used to work. 
I took two pence halfpenny yesterday and three pence today. The day before yesterday, I didn't take a penny. I never come out on Sunday. I goes to Rosamond Street Chapel. Last Saturday, I made one shilling and sixpence. On Friday, sixpence. I dare say I make three shillings and sixpence a week, besides the one shilling and sixpence I gets allowed me. I am forced to make a do of it somehow, but I've no more strength left in me than this old broom. Of course, the great thing about Victorian classic literature is that you really can't pin it down. Just when you think it's all about death and destruction, along comes Elizabeth Barrett with her love sonnets, or Marianne Evans with the endearing charms of Maggie Tulliver. Still, it comes as pretty much of a genuine surprise when modern students come across Victorian writers such as Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear, the true masters of what some like to call meaningful nonsense. Here's Mr. Lear's Calico Pie, followed by Mr. Carroll's Jabberwocky. Calico Pie, the little birds fly down to the calico tree. Their wings were blue and they sang tilly-loo till away they flew and they never came back to me. They never came back, they never came back, they never came back to me. Calico Jam, the little fish swam over the syllabub sea. He took off his hat to the sole and the sprat and the willoughby wat, but he never came back to me. He never came back, he never came back, he never came back to me. Calico Ban, the little mice ran to be ready in time for tea. Flippity-flup, they drank it all up and danced in the cup, but they never came back to me. They never came back, they never came back, they never came back to me. Calico Drum, the grasshoppers come, the butterfly, beetle, and bee. Over the ground, around and around, with a hop and a bound, but they never came back. They never came back. They never came back. They never came back to me. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the mome raths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jujub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And, as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tulgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, Kaloo, Calais! He chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the mome raths outgrabe. Certainly it's nonsense poetry, pure and simple. But before you throw out the baby with the bathwater, be aware that these masters of such Victorian classics paved the way for much modern thought, if not much of modern literature. Take one of the first Victorian poets who seems to literally rise above that old Tennyson world of death, grief, and moody memories to sing about that eternal embrace of the regenerative joy of the natural world. His name, Gerald Manley Hopkins, and here is one of his best Victorian poems, The Windover. 
a poem all wrapped up in a literary technique quite reminiscent of Mr. Lear and Mr. Carroll. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled on drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on a swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plough down sillion shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. In case you got lost in all those fluttering feathers, it's a poem about a bird in flight. Makes some of those 20th century abstract artists like Picasso and Jackson Pollock seem almost old-fashioned. Still, no review of Victorian classics would be complete without mentioning two of the most recited and referenced poems of Queen Victoria's reign. Though both were written late in the Victorian era, and in fact are often thought of as modern 20th century poems, they are firmly rooted in the 19th century. Both eloquently affirm core Victorian values, namely those related to that quintessential stoicism of all Britons, or as most of us like to term it, the stiff upper lip. The first one is by William Ernest Henley and is called Invictus. The second, by Rudyard Kipling, is known far and wide as If. Both often have their couplets chiseled over archways or along old stone churchyards all throughout England or in such iconic sporting locations as Wimbledon. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowances for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or be lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make a heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings 
and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve you long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, Hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Of course, no Victorian survey would be complete without reference to Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde, a writer of supreme Victorian talent, but with the rotten luck to be born a homosexual in Victorian England. He married the meaningful nonsense of Lewis Carroll with a sharp-eyed social criticism of Matthew Arnold and became the greatest wit of Victorian England, if not subsequent ages. Here's an example of the sort of thing you might read in Pall Mall magazine late in the 19th century, written by Mr. Wilde. Books, I fancy, may be conveniently divided into three classes. One, books to read, such as Cicero's Letters, Suetonius, Vasari's Lives of the Painters, the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Sir John Mandeville, Marco Polo, St. Simon's Memoirs, Mommsen, until we get a better one, Grote's History of Greece. Two, books to reread, such as Plato and Keats. In the sphere of poetry, the masters, not the minstrels. In the sphere of philosophy, the seers, not the savants. Three, books not to read at all, such as Thompson's Seasons, Rogers' Italy, Paley's Evidences, All the Fathers Except St. Augustine, All John Stuart Mill Except the Essay on Liberty, All Voltaire's Plays Without Exception, Butler's Analogy, Grant's Aristotle, Hume's England, Lew's History of Philosophy, All Argumentative Books, and All Books That Try to Prove Anything. The third class is by far the most important. To tell people what to read is, as a rule, either useless or harmful, for the appreciation of literature is a question of temperament, not of teaching. To Parnassus there is no primer, and nothing that one can learn is ever worth learning. But to tell people what not to read is a very different matter, and I venture to recommend it as a mission to the university extension scheme. Indeed, it is one that is eminently needed in this age of ours, an age that reads so much that it has no time to admire, and writes so much that it has no time to think. Whoever will select out of the chaos of our modern curricula the worst hundred books and publish a list of them will confer on the rising generation a real and lasting benefit. Poor Oscar died in Paris an impoverished and reviled exile late in 1900, less than three months before Queen Victoria herself passed away in January 1901. Yet mercifully for those of us born in the 20th century and thousands of miles away, there was another up-and-coming, freckled-faced, red-headed 25-year-old Englishman, well, half English, his mother was American-born in Brooklyn, who had already written three books, had participated in four wars on three different continents, and yet had no intention of ending his days in any value of death with any immortal 600. 
Rather, Winston Spencer Churchill, a true Victorian born in 1874, fancied himself a thoroughly modern 20th century answer to William H. Russell. Late in 1899, the young Churchill had traveled to South Africa to cover the Boer War for the London Morning Post. Somehow, he also ended up as a combatant who was captured, held as a prisoner of war, and by December 1899, he stood at real risk of being summarily shot at dawn. But before both the 19th century and Queen Victoria ended their mortal days, Winston Entz Churchill pulled off one of the most daring escapes in military, if not literary history. We join him on the night of December 12th, 1899. How unhappy is that poor man who loses his liberty? What can the wide world give him in exchange? No degree of material comfort. No consciousness of correct behavior can balance the hateful degradation of imprisonment. Before I had been an hour in captivity, I resolved to escape. Many plans suggested themselves, were examined, and rejected. For a month I thought of nothing else but the peril and difficulty restrained action. I think that it was the news of the British defeat at Stormberg that clinched the matter. All the news we heard in Pretoria was derived from Boer sources and was hideously exaggerated and distorted. Every day we read in the Volkstem, probably the most amazing tissue of lies ever presented to the public under the name of a newspaper, of Boer victories and of the huge slaughters and shameful flights of the British. However much one might doubt and discount these tales, they made a deep impression. A month's feeding on such literary garbage weakens the constitution of the mind. We wretched prisoners lost heart. Perhaps Great Britain would not persevere. Perhaps foreign powers would intervene. Perhaps there would be another disgraceful, cowardly peace. At the best, the war and our confinement would be prolonged for many months. I do not pretend that impatience at being locked up was not the foundation of my determination but I should have never screwed up my courage to make the attempt without the earnest desire to do something, however small, to help the British cause. Of course, I am a man of peace. I do not fight. But swords are not the only weapons in the world. Something may be done with a pen. So I determined to take all hazards, and indeed the affair was one of very great danger and difficulty. The state model schools, the building in which we were confined, is a brick structure standing in the midst of a gravel quadrangle and surrounded on two sides by an iron grill and on the remaining two sides by a corrugated iron fence about ten feet high. These boundaries offered little obstacle to anyone who possessed the activity of youth, but the fact that they were guarded on the inside by sentries armed with rifles and revolvers fifty yards apart made them a well-nigh insuperable barrier. No walls are so hard to pierce as living walls. I thought of the penetrating power of gold, and the sentries were sounded. They were incorruptible. I seek not to deprive them of the credit, but the truth is that the bribery market in this country has been spoiled by the millionaires. I couldn't afford with my slender resources to insult them heavily enough, so nothing remained but to break out in spite of them. With another officer who may for the present, since he is still a prisoner, remain nameless, I formed a scheme. After anxious reflection and continual watching, it was discovered that when the sentries near the offices walked about on their beats, 
they were at certain moments unable to see the top of a few yards of the wall. The electric lights in the middle of the quadrangle brilliantly lighted the whole place, but cut off the sentries beyond them from looking at the eastern wall. For behind the lights all seemed, by contrast, darkness. The first thing was, therefore, to pass the two sentries near the offices. It was necessary to hit off the exact moment when both their backs should be turned together. After the wall was scaled, we should be in the garden of the villa next door. There our plan came to an end. Everything after this was vague and uncertain. How to get out of the garden? How to pass unnoticed through the streets? How to evade the patrols that surrounded the town? And above all, how to cover the 280 miles to the Portuguese frontiers were questions which would arise at a later stage. All attempts to communicate with friends outside had failed. We cherished the hope that with chocolate, a little native knowledge, and a great deal of luck, we might march the distance in a fortnight, buying meals at the native kraals and lying hidden by day. But it didn't look a very promising prospect. We determined to try on the night of 11 December, making up our minds quite suddenly in the morning, for these things are best done on the spur of the moment. I passed the afternoon in positive terror. Nothing has ever disturbed me as much as this. There is something appalling in the idea of stealing secretly off in the night like a guilty thief. The fear of detection has a pang of its own. Besides, we knew quite well that on occasion, even on excuse, the sentries, they were armed police, would fire. Fifteen yards is a short range, and beyond the immediate danger lay a prospect of severe hardship and suffering. Only faint hope of success, and the probability at the best of five months in Pretoria jail. The afternoon dragged tediously away. I tried to read Mr. Lecky's History of England, but for the first time in my life, that wise writer wearied me. I played chess and was hopelessly beaten. At last, it grew dark, and at seven o'clock the bell for dinner rang and the officers trooped off. Now was the time, but the sentries gave us no chance. They did not walk about. One of them stood exactly opposite the only practicable part of the wall. We waited for two hours, but the attempt was plainly impossible, and so with a most unsatisfactory feeling of relief, to bed. Tuesday the 12th. Another day of fear, but fear crystallizing more and more into desperation. Anything was better than further suspense. Night came again, and again the dinner bell sounded. Choosing my opportunity, I strolled across the quadrangle and secreted myself in one of the offices. Through a chink I watched the sentries. For half an hour they remained stolid and obstructive. Then, all of a sudden, one turned and walked up to his comrade, and they began to talk. Their backs were turned. Now or never. I darted out of my hiding place and ran to the wall, seized the top with my hands, and drew myself up. Twice I let myself down again in sickly hesitation, and then, with a third resolve, scrambled up. The top was flat. Lying on it, I had one parting glimpse of the sentries, still talking, still with their backs turned, but I repeat, fifteen yards away. Then I lowered myself silently down into the adjoining garden and crouched among the shrubs. I was free. The first step had been taken, and it was irrevocable. It now remained to await the arrival of my comrade. 
The bushes of the garden gave a good deal of cover, and in the moonlight their shadows lay black on the ground. Twenty yards away was the house, and I had not been five minutes in hiding before I perceived that it was full of people. The windows revealed brightly lighted rooms, and within I could see figures moving about. This was a fresh complication. We had always thought the house unoccupied. Presently, how long afterwards, I do not know, for the ordinary measures of time, hours, minutes, and seconds are quite meaningless on such occasions, a man came out of the door and walked across the garden in my direction. Scarcely ten yards away, he stopped and stood still, looking steadily towards me. I cannot describe the surge of panic which nearly overwhelmed me. I must be discovered. I dared not stir an inch. But amid a tumult of emotion, reason seated firmly on her throne whispered, Trust to the dark background. I remained absolutely motionless. For a long time the man and I remained opposite each other, and every instant I expected him to spring forward. A vague idea crossed my mind that I might silence him. Hush, I'm a detective. We expect that an officer will break out here tonight. I'm waiting to catch him. Reason, scornful this time, replied, Surely a Transvaal detective would speak Dutch. Trust to the shadow. So I trusted. And after a spell, another man came out of the house, lit a cigar, and both he and the other walked off together. No sooner had they turned than a cat, pursued by a dog, rushed into the bushes and collided into me. The startled animal uttered a meow of alarm and darted back again, making a horrible rustling. Both men stopped at once, but it was only the cat, and they passed out of the garden gate into the town. I looked at my watch. An hour had passed since I climbed the wall. Where was my comrade? Suddenly, I heard a voice from within the quadrangle say quite loud, All up! I crawled back to the wall. Two officers were walking up and down the other side, jabbering Latin words, laughing and talking all manner of nonsense, amid which I caught my name. I risked a cough. One of the officers immediately began to chatter alone. The other said slowly and clearly, Can't get out. The sentry suspects. It's all up. Can you get back again? But now all my fears fell from me at once. To go back was impossible. I could not hope to climb the wall unnoticed, and fate pointed onwards. Besides, I said to myself, of course I shall be recaptured, but I will at least have a run for my money. I said to the officers, I shall go on alone. Now I was in the right mood for these undertakings. That is to say that, thinking failure most certain, no odds against success affected me. All risks were less than the certainty. The gate which led into the road was only a few yards from another sentry. I said to myself, Toujours l'audace, put my hat on my head, strode out into the middle of the garden, walked past the windows of the house without any attempt at concealment, and so went through the gate and turned to the left. I passed the sentry at less than five yards. Most of them knew me by sight. Whether he looked at me or not, I do not know, for I never turned my head. But after walking a hundred yards, I knew that the second obstacle had been surmounted. I was at large in Pretoria. I walked on leisurely through the night, humming a tune and choosing the middle of the road. The streets were full of burghers, but they paid no attention to me. And gradually I reached the suburbs, and on a little bridge I sat down to reflect and consider. I was in the heart of the enemy's country. I knew no one to whom I could apply for succor. 
nearly 300 miles stretched between me and Delagoa Bay. My escape must be known at dawn. Pursuit would be immediate, yet all exits were barred. The town was picketed, the country was patrolled, the trains were searched, and the line was guarded. I had 75 pounds in my pocket and four slabs of chocolate, but the compass and the map which might have guided me, the opium tablets and meat lozenges which should have sustained me, were in my friend's pockets in the state model school. Worst of all, I couldn't speak a word of Dutch or native language, and how was I to get food or direction? But when hope had departed, fear had gone as well. I formed a plan. I would find the Delagoa Bay Railway, and without map or compass, I must follow that in spite of the pickets. I looked at the stars, and Orion shone brightly. Scarcely a year ago, he had guided me when lost in the desert to the bank of the Nile. He had given me water. Now he should lead me to freedom. I could not endure the want of either. After walking south for half a mile, I struck the railroad. Was it the line to Delagoa Bay or the Petersburg branch? If it were the former, it should run east. But as far as I could see, this line ran northwards. Still, it might be only winding its way out among the hills. I resolved to follow it. The night was delicious. A cool breeze fanned my face, and a wild feeling of exhilaration took hold of me. At any rate, I was free, if only for an hour. That was something. And the fascination of the adventure grew. Unless the stars in their courses fought for me, I could not escape. Where was the need for caution? I marched briskly along the line. Here and there the lights of a picket fire gleamed, and every bridge had its watchers, but I passed them all, making very short detours to the dangerous places, and really taking scarcely any precaution. As I walked, I extended my plan. I couldn't march 300 miles to the frontier. I'd go by train. I'd board a train in motion and hide under the seats, on the roof, on the couplings, anywhere. What train should I take? The first, of course. After walking for two hours, I perceived the signal lights of a station. I left the line and, circling round it, hid in the ditch by the track about 200 yards beyond it. I argued that the train would stop at the station and that it would not have got up too much speed by the time it reached me. An hour passed. I began to grow impatient. Suddenly, I heard the whistle and the approaching rattle. Then the great yellow headlights of the engine flashed into view. The train waited five minutes at the station and started again with much noise and steaming. I crouched by the track. I rehearsed the act in my mind. I must wait until the engine had passed, otherwise I should be seen. Then I must make a dash for the carriages. The train started slowly but gathered speed sooner than I had expected. The flaring lights drew swiftly near and the rattle grew into a roar. The dark mass hung for a second above me, and the engine driver silhouetted against his furnace glow the black profile of the engine, and the clouds of steam rushed past. I hurled myself on the trucks, clutched at something, missed, clutched again, missed again, and grasped some sort of handhold which was swung off my feet, my toes bumping on the line, and with a struggle seated myself on the couplings of the fifth truck from the front of the train." It was a goods train, and the trucks were full of sacks, soft sacks, covered with coal dust. I crawled on top and burrowed in among them. In five minutes, I was completely buried. The sacks were warm and comfortable. Perhaps the engine driver had seen me rush up to the train and would give the alarm at the next station. On the other hand, 
Perhaps not. Where was the train going to? Where would it be unloaded? And would it be searched? Was it on the Delagoa Bay line at all? What should I do in the morning? Oh, never mind that. Sufficient for the day was the luck thereof. Fresh plans for fresh contingencies. I resolved to sleep. Nor can I imagine a more pleasing lullaby than the clatter of the train that carries you at twenty miles an hour away from the enemy's capital. How long I slept, I do not know, but I woke up suddenly with all feelings of exhilaration gone, and only the consciousness of oppressive difficulties heavy on me. I must leave the train before daybreak so that I could drink at a pool and find some hiding place while it was still dark. Another night I would board another train. I crawled from my cozy hiding place among the sacks and sat again on the couplings. The train was running at a fair speed, but I felt it was time to leave it. I took hold of the iron handle at the back of the truck, pulled strongly with my left hand, and sprang. My feet struck the ground in two gigantic strides, and the next instant I was sprawling in the ditch, considerably shaken but unhurt. The train, my faithful ally of the night, hurried on its journey. It was still dark. I was in the middle of a wide valley, surrounded by low hills and carpeted with high grass drenched in dew. I searched for water in the nearest gully and soon found a clear pool. I was very thirsty, but long after I had quenched my thirst, I continued to drink that I might have sufficient for the whole day. Presently, the dawn began to break, and the sky to the east grew yellow and red, slashed across with heavy black clouds. I saw with relief that the railway ran steadily towards the sunrise. I had taken the right line, after all. And there you have it. The Englishman who is not a full-blooded Englishman, born in Victoria, England, but destined to be a thoroughly 20th century modern, and who, upon his fortuitous escape, would return to merry old England once again, and after his queen had died, he would go on to sing her praises and spend the rest of his Victorian self saving the hide of the modern free world too often dangling by the skin of its teeth. How? Well, word has it, old Winston knew the entire Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubiat by heart, often quoted from it liberally, and especially that last quintessential couplet we read to you earlier. Ah, take the cash and let the credit go, nor heed the rumble of a distant drum. We hope you enjoyed today's show by the Opionga Readers Theatre, whose readers include Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chepesky, Brian Peterson, Carol Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormke. They all encourage you to contact your local library and check out those poets, authors, and journalists we mentioned today. But don't forget to avoid those terrible 100 books Oscar Wilde mentioned, if only to help get you nonsensically through the rest of this COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for our producer of the Opiongo line, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you a very enjoyable Victoria Day. Good day. And God bless.